0: This podcast is supported by Amber Road, the world's leading provider of on-demand global trade management software and solutions. Amber Road's single on-demand platform automates and streamlines processes for import-export global logistics and trade agreement management. By helping organizations comply with country-specific trade regulations, as well as plan, execute, and track global trade, Amber Road enables goods to flow unimpeded across international borders in the most efficient, compliant, and profitable way. Let's see, raw materials, procurement, manufacturing, international trade, distribution, transportation, returns, customer service, and information technology. They're all part of what we call the supply chain. Welcome everyone, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. In this series of podcasts, I'll be talking to practitioners, consultants, academics, service providers, regulators, and other experts on every imaginable aspect of global supply chain management. My intention is to delve deeply into the question of what it takes to get product to market, and in the process, have some interesting and entertaining conversations along the way. Now, to kick it off, I have as my guest, attorney Peter Quinter. He chairs the Customs and International Law Group of Gray Robinson. We'll be discussing what's coming down the pike in 2014 and beyond in the form of new regulations and restrictions affecting international trade. Peter's an expert on border security, trade and customs law, and global logistics. So here is my conversation with Peter Quinter. Peter Quinter, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Happy to speak to you. Let's talk about, uh, in your opinion, what is top of mind these days in the area of customs and international trade law and regulation?
1: U.S. Customs and Border Protection, more commonly known as CBP, part of the Department of Homeland Security, is focused, I would say obsessed, with attempting to identify high-risk shipments uh, arriving in the United States. So if... uh, Vessel comes in, has 5,000 containers on board. Which of those containers does Customs need, feel like it needs to examine and isolate and then go in and actually examine the contents of the containers? That's what Customs is trying to focus on. And it's a difficult balance between trying to examine everything and nothing, between facilitating trade and national security.
0: And right now, what is the bottom line impact on the uh, on, on shipments as they come in? Are we seeing shipment delays as a result of this?
1: Absolutely. Every port around the country, whether it's airport or seaport or your border crossings with Canada and Mexico, have, you always have importers and exporters complaining about delays while cargo is selected for examination, is physically examined, and then, of course, the importer or exporter has to pay, not the government, but... Uh, the other transportation companies for that delay. And there's no, of course, apology by the government when they search sometimes even damage cargo while they're doing their examination.
0: Yeah. Where are we with respect to the controversy over radiation scanning and the big machines that were supposedly going to be at every port and every single container coming in was going to be scanned?
1: It, it is a controversy. It's uh, The government spent a lot of money putting these radiation portals at the seaports around the country. Uh, they are in place at most of the major seaports at this point. To my knowledge, they've never alerted to anything that's been in the container. So what the effect efficacy of it is, uh, is questionable. As a matter of fact, if you look up the last year's General Accountability GAO, so General Accountability Office, report about customs examinations, they are critical of customs because it does not to seem, seem to be any validity to customs selectivity programs, how they determine which containers are being examined. So it's, uh, it's still an issue.
0: So are you really saying that there, in, in the case of the radiation portals, there has not been a single container that has been identified as containing any of these materials so far?
1: I'm c- correct. I'm not aware of any alert or, uh, or a situation where the container, you know, the trucker takes it off the, contain- off the ship, brings to the portal, and the portal alerts and identifies as some sort of radiation, chemical, or other weapon of mass destruction. There may be unidentified merchandise in the container, which is is a problem, but nothing that uh, would be uh, of a national security concern.
0: So what are some solutions for importers? How can they minimize the risk of delay, minimize the risk of inspection by Customs and Border Protection?
1: Well, I'm happy that, that you asked that question. I'm actually happier that U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Homeland Security generally is now asking that question. We've, I was uh, let's see, going back from 1989 to 1994. I was an assistant chief counsel uh, with the U.S. Customs Office of Chief Counsel. That's the legal office of U.S. Customs. So I've seen it from the government's point of view. And I was in private practice when 9-11 happened, so I've seen the difference how customs and Homeland Security operate pre and post 9-11. Of course, Homeland Security was created in 2003, two years after the 9-11 incident. So I've seen the transition where the balance was out of balance for many years, where national security was the obsessed priority, and trade was very far secondary. Now, many years after 9-11, the balance is becoming... Better, where the government is is legitimately concerned about moving cargo in and out of the country as fast as possible while still protecting the border, as they say, or securing the border. Um, I think now we're we're getting there. I think Customs is doing the right things in doing um, exam- identifying cargo overseas before it takes off by air or ocean uh, to get over here. I think the CTPAD program—that's the U.S. Customs. Uh, uh,
0: Customs trade partnership trade, against trade parts, uh, right, against right. terrorism
1: yep it's it. a mm-hmm. is is an excellent tool for customs uh, to have companies participate and get on the sort of like the good guy list so that their cargo moves faster than somebody else who's not been CTpat certified uh, so mm-hmm. that their supply chain is not uh, not been verified as secure. So that makes sense to me. And the same thing with passengers is something called global entry that Customs has come up with several years ago. And I think that is also an excellent way to move cargo, uh, sorry, move passengers uh, through CBP rather than delay them. So Customs is doing the right thing. They've got the right philosophy. It's just a matter of implementing some of these uh, ideas.
0: So, does CTPAT serve as the best example of the so-called trusted importer type of environment? Is that what you need to be part of in order to make sure that your exposure to these examinations is minimized?
1: It's still minim- yes. I think it's it's still a voluntary process, so not every company has to participate. And and really, it's only for your larger uh, companies that are frequent importers should participate. Um, I think it's a great idea. As far as does it avoid delays, no. You could be a CTPAT member, you can be a third, you know, different, high tier member, and still have your cargo stopped and examined by either customs or another agency. Food and Drug, U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, all of those agencies are still involved in uh, stopping and examining your cargo, even if you're a CTPAT member.
0: Should we worry at some point about the possibility of CTPAT being turned into a mandatory program?
1: I wouldn't worry about it, and I don't know if that's a, such a bad idea anyway uh, so no I wouldn't I, I think CTPAT is a good idea. I like that it's voluntary. there are I think twelve i don't know ten to twelve thousand members already, mostly u s companies uh, mostly us importers so I, I like CTpat if it became mandatory, that would be okay with me. Uh, It's just how CDPAT operates that, you know, it's relatively easy to satisfy the requirements now. If it becomes much more difficult and much more expensive for importers, then uh, it would not be a good idea.
0: So customs, as you indicate, seems to exist in this sort of schizophrenic state uh, between being a trade facilitator and an enforcement agency. That's You're saying true. that the balance is starting to swing back a little bit more now post 9-11 toward the facilitation uh, edge of that end of that pendulum?
1: The, the priority, if you look at the mission of CBP, you'll see uh, trade facilitation is not the priority. It's you know, protecting, securing the borders, anti-terrorism. Uh, that's still the priority. No doubt about it. the the difference is quite drastic from pre-9/11 to now. You know, before 9/11, protecting the revenue was the important thing, In other words, collecting customs duties or tariffs um, for the revenue uh, of the United States. As you might know, customs was the only federal agency when the U.S. Co- U.S. government was founded that uh, supported financially the U.S. government. There was no tax authority like we have the IRS which didn't exist mm-hmm. until the 20th century. Uh, all the revenues of the, the federal government were supported by the, the U.S. Customs. So that's, that changed drastically after 9-11 under the Bush administration. Creation of Homeland Security and protecting the border, anti-terrorism was, became the priority. And and the, as I said, I would say maybe 80% of what Customs did was focused on that, 20% of trade facilitation. Now it's, it's much closer, I'd say 55%, uh, uh, Border security and uh, 45% uh, trade facilitation.
0: Do you expect customs to tighten the screws even more? Do you think we might see some additional regulations coming down the pike, which would pay, place another burden or an increasing burden on importers?
1: Definitely. Uh, whether this is just, just a sign of the times, the the laws that were passed after 9/11 and continue to be passed uh, have encouraged customs to create new and some helpful. Regulatory requirements for importers and exporters that didn't exist before, so it's much more difficult to import or export uh, with the United States. And unfortunately, part of the result of that is some companies who didn't, who previously trans, let's say they would transship their cargo or in transit movement, so it come, let's say, uh, Asia, Europe to Miami, Miami to Latin America. Now they just skip the United States completely and they send it direct, not or nonstop from. Europe to Latin America to avoid the bureaucracy that they have to deal with if the cargo comes into a port in the United States. Um, so that's unfortunate. Supposedly, if you're a U.S. importer of food, you're supposed to guarantee that there's nothing wrong with that food. The uh, problem is the U.S. buyer may have absolutely nothing to do with the original manufacturer of that food in, let's say, far away as you can get, let's say, Australia. The Australian uh, producer of that food may sell it to a middleman who sends it sells it to a second middleman, a third middleman who sells it to the U.S. importer. So the U.S. importer has no idea where it originally came from or who made it, and yet they're supposed to guarantee that the manufacturer was uh, um, perfect, and I don't see how that's going to happen.
0: Well, this is that controversy, the farm-to-fork uh, movement where companies are expected to uh, have some kind of provenance or control over every step of the food supply chain. But as you can say, that can be a farm, a distant farm thousands of miles away and a lot of different hands changing, uh, having, having control over that material I, between exactly then and here. I just don't so, see the um, law uh,
1: being realistic in that aspect. I mean obviously we have the FDA and US customs mm. protect to make sure we don't have any adulterated or other kind of food products coming to the United States that could harm US citizens or or, uh, or animals even but but yeah. uh, to get some sort of have a, some sort of a verification that the importer has to sign um, is a little a little too heavy-handed and to assess a penalty against the importer if for some reason the food does turn out to be bad Uh, because they didn't guarantee that the original manufacturer did a great job. That's that's, uh, too much.
0: Is it coming coming anyway? anyway. I mean, uh, all of these regulations have been preceded by industry at some point saying, there's no way we can do that. We can't afford it. We don't have that kind of control. The regulation comes along, and somehow we make do, or don't. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to stop the regulation from coming.
1: You know, the 24-hour rule is a good example where – U.S. Customs issued a regulation that said 24 hours before the vessel vessel cargo gets loaded aboard aboard that vessel, you have to submit uh, the manifest of what's in the container. And everybody said, that's ridiculous, 24 hours. We don't even know. We have a clue 24 hours ahead. Well, somehow they made it happen, uh, and everybody's used to it at this point.
0: Do you see any extension on that? Do you think 24 hours is where it's going to stop, or might customs seek to reach even further back in the supply chain—not even necessarily the food supply chain, but high-tech consumer electronics, consumer packaged goods? Will they have to start worrying about reaching further up and getting control over the beginnings or the uh, the upstream tiers well, of their supply chains as well?
1: <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I think that's—I think it's headed that way. But that's sort of—I um, think the the world might be headed that way, where there's security cameras everywhere, watching everything. It's the same thing with your movement of the cargo, mm-hmm. where the government wants to know everything about every cargo in the world, um, just in case something might happen. So I think it's just too much.
0: And yet we say that, but we have to steel ourselves for it anyway.
1: Unfortunately, people are afraid. People are are fearful of what-if scenarios. You know, So it's easy to appeal yeah. to people's fears.
0: I want to take a minute to tell you about Amber Road. Amber Road wants to remind you to check out their new interactive white paper, Mastering the Complexities of Global Trade. Different languages, a proliferation of constantly changing government regulations, and heightened security concerns are just a few of the issues that make global trade management far more complex and difficult than domestic logistics. This interactive white paper, produced by Supply Chain Brain, Contains videos of four Amber Road executives discussing a range of topics, including the evolution of global trade management solutions, executive attention to global trade risk, how technology drives GTM value, and international versus domestic transportation management. You may download and view the white paper at www.amberroad.com. And now, back to my conversation with Peter Quinter. How does Homeland Security come into the uh, to the freight and the cargo environment uh, in addition to Customs and Border Protection? Are there, are there additional types of regulations or oversight from that side that we need to be looking at?
1: Certainly. Well, part of Homeland Security you have two other major uh, law enforcement agencies, one is TSA, Transportation Security Administration. We're all familiar with them as airline passengers, but they have a whole cargo aspect to it as well. Um, and they have their own sort of supply chain uh, process that's going to be uh, – laden aboard a, um, a passenger aircraft, there's certain requirements, and that sort of makes sense to me. Um, and then the Coast Guard, of course, has, continues to do their job, and I think pretty effectively. They're much more involved nowadays in, in inter, inter what do you call it, uh, getting involved with, with drug, the drug trade, stopping the drug trade, than they ever were before. But that's fine with me.
0: Now, you've worked with uh, clients ranging from Swiss cigar manufacturers to Chilean seafood producers to German honey producers. So you really run the gamut. On the types of goods that are out there, are there any particular industries that are especially critical right now in this area of regulation that really need to be taking a close look at what's coming down the pike for them?
1: I think there's a lot more tension nowadays. Well, this is clearly there's a lot more tension of what's leaving the United States than there was ever before. It used to be the government was really interested in what's coming into the United States, and what was leaving, well, we didn't care because it was leaving. So uh, now the government has changed, and they're just as interested in cargo that leaves the United States. This could be chemicals of some sort. It could be ammunition or other military items of some sort. It could be high technology of some sort that ends up in the hands of the Iranians or Chinese or whoever you, you name so there's a lot more regulations regarding that than ever before. And as a matter of fact, the uh, State Department just issued regulations about what they call brokering, where you are somehow involved in the sale or finance or purchase of uh, military items, even though you're not the actual exporter. If you're brokering it, you need to register with the State Department.
0: Well, there's no lack of solutions out there on the software side or on the services side uh, purporting to offer exporters the type of intelligence that will help them to avoid sending their technology to banned or blacklisted sources. Um, are those effective, or does more need to be done in order to protect against that type of thing happening?
1: I am good. Another great question. I think it's not effective. Um, this gets back to the, the age-old question of, for example, I live in South Florida, so we're, of course, very aware of the U.S. embargo with Cuba, um, which has been going on for 60 years. It doesn't seem to have changed the government policy in Cuba, Uh, so I don't know if the sanctions programs that the U.S. government has for Cuba was effective, um, and therefore I don't know if other programs are just as effective. All these uh, different lists of people and companies around the world that we're not allowed to do business with, the rest of the world, for example, does business with Cuba. I think we're the only country in the world that does not do business with Cuba. Um, Whether that made a difference doesn't seem to be making a difference. Um, as far as the cuban uh, government goes so i wouldn't mind seeing the end of the u.s embargo i think if we did end the embargo we would then see a change in in the cuban government Uh, i don't think they would be as repressive i think that eventually just like russia um, they would end up being hopefully more democratic now i could be a little idealistic but if one thing hasn't worked in the last 60 years let's try something else
0: so you think that might give us a potential for even greater oversight over technology exports if we had that kind of visibility with a Cuba that was not banned from doing business with not us?
1: Not just technology. I think there'd be a huge market in Cuba for U.S. goods and investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be great for U.S. companies and for people and for the Cuban people. And once the money went in there, I don't think there's any reasonable person would say that the Cuban government would not make changes somehow to accommodate those investments, which they think they desperately need.
0: What do you think we might see on the export side to address some of these issues that you described? Might we even see a CTPAT-type program being applied for exports? Well, there's
1: sort of a CTPAT. There's a, you know, with the State Department, you have to register. The the companies have to register with the State Department um, every year and pay a fee. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's the State Department and the BIS, Bureau of Industry and Security Agents, part of the Commerce Department. Go to the U.S. companies and go around the world and verify whether a license was complied with or not. If uh, some item was shipped to Indonesia, the BIS agents might go to the Indonesian buyer and verify that the cargo did arrive and still is there, and not being resold to somebody else. Um, so, the U.S. government is quite active. Uh, it's larger than ever before, despite the uh, Republicans uh, saying otherwise. It's their Homeland Security is huge. And getting bigger by the year um, and some of it's good you know like I said we talked about the Coast Guard I think that's great some of the customs programs are excellent uh, some of the cust- the TSA cargo security programs are excellent uh, so I like to see that that and of course there is a real need to have national security or homeland security um, I think people are aware of that nowadays question of balance.
0: So what should companies be doing now that they're not doing? I would imagine that some of the big traders have some pretty sophisticated uh, efforts within-house. They must have people who are specialists in international trade. Am I being naive and thinking so? Uh, and what more do companies need to do in order to just keep on top of all these things well, we've I been talking about?
1: Part, not part, from my perspective, 9-11 has made logistics or international supply chain a much higher level level sophisticated, um, profession than it was before. So I think there are greater opportunities in the employment world to get involved in, in logistics than ever before. And I think, uh, people understand there's so much made over the seas that comes here and here that goes overseas. It's a much smaller world than it used to be for everybody. So I, I think if I was a young person starting out again, I would get into a school program that had a supply chain, um, class or a seminar or or a degree and go that way. Assuming,
0: of course, that supply chain classes today incorporate this type of uh, information like into their that's programs. That's
1: true, and I, but I, I teach at some of the local uh, business schools, and they really do. It's surprising to me this was not offered 20 and 30 years ago, but nowadays it's a standard class uh, and course uh, and degree program at some of these universities, which, like I said, didn't exist.
0: A lot of it seems to be about knowing your suppliers for importers and knowing your end markets for exporters. As simple as that, but a very complicated thing to uh, execute, I would imagine.
1: That's true. Most of us just don't get that because a lot of people are not in international business. Most people just go, I know Publix or my my local supermarket because I buy my vegetables there. Uh, But they don't know where the vegetables came from before they went to the supermarket. It may have changed hands a dozen times and gone through a couple of different countries. Um, it may have gone by ocean and air and land, uh, overland, before it got to the local supermarket. Um, or you go to your local department store to buy clothing. Most people don't look to see the label on the clothing to see what country it was made. They just, they're oblivious to it. So from the
0: standpoint of an importer or an exporter looking ahead at 2014 and 2015, what are one or two of the most important issues that they need to be thinking about now in order to stay on top of all this?
1: It's almost impossible, even for the big companies, to hire enough lawyers or consultants or uh, specialists to know all the rules and regulations because it's just so much more coming out today than there was 10 years ago or, t- or more before that. Um, nevertheless, each company should be familiar with its, should have somebody looking out for its, its good uh, in the compliance world. So as I was saying before, in the logistics field, most companies of any size have a, some sort of compliance officer, which uh, they didn't have. Many years ago, uh, because to comply with all the regular rules that we have, just like all the human resource rules came out decades ago, so everybody has had to hire a human resource officer. Um, So I think legal departments have become much more sophisticated, and now there are customs and trade lawyers on the legal departments. Many law firms, I'm sorry, many corporate counsel. Um, And as far as going forward to 2014 and beyond. I, my philosophy has been that companies who commit violations don't do so, for the most part, intentionally. It's accidentally. There was some rule of regulation that, which they are unaware of, and they ended up tripping that rule of regulation. Um, that's inevitable, I think. It's kind of like driving a car. Sooner or later, if you drive a car for 50 years, you're going to have a little fender bender or you're getting a traffic ticket. I think the same thing occurs in the, the law enforcement field when you're in the import-export business. The question is... If the judge, the jury, or the law enforcement agency, such as Customs or Homeland Security, what action are they going to take when the violation occurs? Is everybody going to jail or is it a fine? That's where discretion comes in. And my concern the past several years is that the government has been too heavy handed in in heavily fining or pursuing criminal investigations against persons or companies where it was just not necessary.
0: Well, we're just about out of time, so I want to thank you, uh, Peter Quinter, uh, Customs and International Trade Attorney with Gray Robinson. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: That was International Trade and Customs Attorney Peter Quinter. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'd like to thank Amber Road for sponsoring this podcast. Amber Road Solutions use a combination of enterprise-class software, intelligent trade content, and a global trade network. It connects supply chain participants such as importers, exporters, freight forwarders, customs brokers, and transportation carriers. To learn more, please visit www.amberroad.com or email solutions at amberroad.com. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you can stream or download this podcast, read my think tank blog, Watch over 1,000 videos and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at Supply Chain See you next time.